This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. Today, it's another installment of The Zine Scene, this time looking at the APRO Bulletin from 1972. And we are back after an extra week uh, between episodes for, among other things, Thanksgiving, and also uh, illness. Um, my second sinus infection of the season so far. It's uh, it's going to be a bad season for those, I think. Still um, not feeling great throat-wise, so we'll see how this goes. So let's jump in to APRO. We've talked about APRO a few times over the years, uh, or at least we've talked about its uh, sort of leading lights, Jim and Coral Lorenzen. Uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen established APRO in the early 1950s, 1950 or 1951. And Coral Lorenzen uh, claimed that she had a, a UFO sighting as a child in the 1930s. She got interested in the topic again um, in the 1940s when that uh, whole UFO thing sort of started up there in 1947. And very quickly in 19, the early 1950s, the Lorenzins established themselves as being highly organized and highly driven and highly interested in investigating all kinds of UFO sightings and all kinds of various encounters, lots of correspondence and information and stories and sightings from, from their people all over the world. It was in the pages of the APRO Bulletin that we first hear the story of um, Antonio uh, Villas Boas, who had that strange encounter with that strange woman or woman-shaped creature uh, in that, that saucer with the strange animal-like sounds and so forth. And APRO you know, existed at the same time as NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. Oh, I should say what APRO stands for, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization. So there we go. So they, they overlapped, and, and there's a, a sort of natural desire, I think, to compare the two organizations. And the best way I can do that, and it's sort of the, the, the best explanation I have, and it's, it's deeply flawed, and I, I realize that, but I, I think NICAP was more focused on getting the government to reveal everything it knew about the flying saucers because clearly the government knew a whole lot about flying saucers. And APRO seemed to be more interested in figuring out what the flying saucers were. And and that is a massive generalization. But I, I will say that, that my favorite thing about APRO, what, what I like best about APRO, is the fact that in the APRO bulletin, you see all kinds of encounters. Uh, and you see Jim and Coral Lawrence and giving lots of time to encounters that are kind of strange and ob like not just objects, but strange people and their book flying saucer occupants, which we did an episode on a long time ago, sort of, sort of bears that out. They are 
willing to entertain stories of deeply strange things. And NICAP, just from everything I've seen of their materials over the years, was never really into the super weird stuff because, you know, we know what they are. They're alien spacecraft from other planets. With APRO, you know, they're leaning in that direction, but you don't really know. And I think it's important to note the the role that it's sort of pioneering role that, that Coral Lorenzen played in this as a woman in the UFO field. Uh, it was it was run by by both Jim and Coral Lorenzen. If we look at the masthead of um, of the uh, of the, the bulletin, um, you know, Jim was the international director, but uh, Coral was the secretary treasurer. And let's let's be honest, uh, Coral was the editor of the newsletter. So the voice of the organization was was hers even if Jim's name was was there as the the international director so uh, coral I don't think gets enough credit in general about uh, about this when there's there's lists of, of women in ufology um, sometimes you'll see her there more often than not uh, you don't which I think is a real shame now, I should note, I've not seen every list of women in ufology that's ever been published, so maybe she's out there more than I think. But I always have this impression that, that she's not given the recognition she, uh, she so richly deserves. So that's just a little bit about APRO. Let's dive into uh, the bulletin for, uh, for 1972, starting with the January and February issue. And uh, even though there is a close-up sighting in New Jersey, that is the the sort of big headline. What I want to focus on first is the sort of smaller headline, Enquirer offers $50,000 reward. The March 12th issue of the weekly newspaper, The National Enquirer, announced their sponsorship of a $50,000 reward to be paid to that individual who furnishes proof of the existence of UFOs before the 1st of January, 1973. The offer, detailed on page 30 by William Dick, reads, A reward of $50,000 will be paid by the Inquirer to the first person who can prove that an unidentified flying object came from outer space and is not a natural phenomenon. All right, the fix is in. Come on, Inquirer. Those, those requirements are just, oh, they're so, they're so squishy, right? It's from outer space. Not a natural phenomenon. What if it's from outer space and a natural phenomenon? I guess that would just be like a meteor or something. But uh, yeah, it's how do you prove that? How do you prove something is not a natural phenomenon? Isn't that sort of the logical sort of thing where you can't logically prove a negative? I, I seem to recall that from teaching critical thinking courses at one time. So what does all of this have to do with APRO? Well, APRO is supplying the judges or the, I don't know if that's, the, yeah, yeah, the judges. They, they do describe it as a, a board that will be doing the final judging. It's uh, APRO consultants who are involved, and uh, it's going to be uh, Dr. Robert Cregan, APRO consultant in philosophy, Dr. James Harder, APRO consultant in civil engineering, Dr. Frank B. Salisbury, APRO consultant in exobiology, Dr. R. Leo Sprinkle, APRO consultant in whack job abduction hypno, I'm sorry, psychology, as well as J. Allen Hynek, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, head of the Department of Astronomy at Northwestern University and former scientific consultant to the Air Force's Project Blue Book. So it's a, I was mean of me to say about Leo Sprinkle, maybe, I don't know. So yeah, it's, um, 
it's a good it's a good board. But the thing is, how are they going to get these cases? How are they going to investigate what will probably be a deluge of reports of people trying to claim this fifty thousand dollars? So APRO is a consultant. And APRO's field investigators, quote, may be called upon to investigate those reports which are deemed worthy of protracted study, um, end quote. And they're encouraging all members and subscribers to forward any news leads pertaining to possible good evidence reports to APRO headquarters. They're interested in cases of photography, physical evidence, ground markings, multiple witnesses. They do say, keep in mind that to qualify for the award, you must make claim in writing directly to the National Enquirer. Um, if you want to know the address, 600 South East Coast Avenue, Lantana, Florida, 33460. So what I think is going on here is that the APRO people are are judging the, the contest or the, the challenge or whatever you want to call it. The, the bounty uh, might be a better name for it. And they're going to be using – their field investigators to to sort of check up on these things, but they also want researchers and subscribers to send in cases to APRO, even though you have to send it to the Inquirer to qualify for the award. So, is is APRO trying to get a bunch of really good cases and maybe win the award themselves? I'm not I'm not entirely sure why they want. People to send things to APRO, but then say, "Well, but for the reward, you, you have to send it to the National Enquirer." But it's it's an interesting thing, and I will um, I, I'm going to predict that uh, nobody's going to get that fifty thousand dollars. Okay, now let's let's go to the the big headline: close up sighting in New Jersey. It was investigated by a Hal Redner, one of APRO's New Jersey field investigators, a guy named Robert Aguilar. 32, was on guard duty at the Penn Central Railroad Yards in Weehawken, New Jersey, and he sees something that is very strange. He's watching the TV, yes, while on guard duty. Uh, so he's he's watching the TV and something catches his attention. There's a bright series of lights stationary about 20 feet away, 15 feet off the ground. Uh, his description of the object was thus. big, about 60 feet across. It hung motionless, absolutely motionless, about 15 feet up. It has a red light on top. The rest didn't seem to have any color with a name, just white. The blocks of light were brighter than the rest of it. The blocks or windows or portholes or whatever they were, were stationary. They, they didn't revolve. They were all the same color. I tried to see into the windows, but they were too bright. I, I couldn't see the bottom. It was it was tilted. The portholes began to rotate like a bicycle chain going around the middle of the thing. So the supervisors, the supervisors come outside and they're looking at it too. And the object at that point had moved about 100 feet away and maybe 100 off the ground. It's still tilted. The rotating lights begin moving rapidly. And he, he said that if he had not seen the portholes when it was stationary, at first, he wouldn't have been able to realize that the belt of light as it spun around was was not solid. Uh, it looked like just a continuous belt of light uh, flying or spinning around. The sky was clear. Moon was visible. There was no sound from the object. Um, he called the police and reported the sighting. Uh, he's Aguilar has taken a lot of kidding and criticism, he says, from his friends. Uh, but he was happy to be contacted by uh, APRO investigator Redner. So hopefully – there will be some 
follow-up in this. I honestly can't remember if there's any follow-up at this on this, but um, yeah, interesting case. Very interesting. I like the the light spinning with the porthole. I think that's it's neat when you see like what looks like an engine spinning up for it to uh, fly off into the air or something. APRO is also getting into the computer age with Project Comcat. As of February 15th, APRO's Project Comcat, computerized catalog of UFO reports, went into preliminary operation. A sizable donation by an APRO member has provided the financial means by which APRO has hired additional office personnel so that efforts can be concentrated on microfilming the report files. The files will be filmed in duplicate, one copy of the film will go to a librarian for cross-referencing, and the other to a team of computer specialists who will transfer the information to punch cards. As the filing is done, specific reports will be pulled, copied, and forwarded to the appropriate consultant. We expect that these efforts will yield positive results within the next three months. We would like to urge those who have reports which have not been submitted to APRO to forward same at the earliest possible opportunity so that they can be included in this important study. You may be expecting some snark at punch cards, but it's 1972. This is actually pretty cool that they are that they are doing this, that they're, they're sort of coming up with a system to more efficiently catalog and and sort of distribute reports to the consultants who might need to be working on them. Speaking of consultants, they have brought on two more consultants here at the beginning of 1972. Um, there's really only one that is uh, probably known to most of us, and he is going to be the new APRO consultant in history. Mr. Jacobs received a BA in history from the University of California, Los Angeles in 1966 and an MA in history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1968. He is now a PhD candidate in history at the University of Wisconsin and should graduate in 1972. His field of specialty is the social, cultural, and intellectual history of the United States. His doctoral thesis is entitled, The Controversy Over Unidentified Flying Objects in America, 1896-1970 which is a discussion of the historical, cultural, and psychological aspects. Besides having been a teaching assistant at the University of Wisconsin's History Department, Mr. Jacobs has received various scholarships, including a Ford Foundation Research Fellowship. He is a member of the Organization of American Historians. As described elsewhere in this issue, Mr. Jacobs is one of four graduate students who have utilized the UFO subject as a basis for a dissertation. His studies on social interactions and the history of UFO sightings will be an asset to APRO in the future. Yes, that is David Jacobs, the future Dr. David Jacobs, getting his uh, getting his start before he's even done with grad school, uh, working for APRO or consulting for APRO and, uh, and, and giving them some historical perspective. That is a very good use of his skills, background, and talents. I think the last thing to sort of mention in this issue, because we've got five more to get through, if we do, we might, uh, we might, we might not do all six. It honestly depends on my throat at this point. But the very end of the newsletter, after a very long review of a fairly boring book called UFOs, The Scientist's Dilemma by Horace Dudley, uh, who is a professor of radiation physics 
at the University of Illinois, Chicago, um, and consultant to APRO on radiation physics. Um, after that, there is a, a sort of non-typeset, just sort of typewriter note at the end. Our apologies for the lateness of this issue. An IBM typesetting machine refused to work properly, and then the editor became ill. So I'm, I'm imagining, you know, this sort of 2001 Space Odyssey style IBM typesetting machine saying, I'm afraid I can't do that, Coral, you know, when she's trying to, to get this, uh, this newsletter out. All right. The March and April 1972 issue of the APRO Bulletin kicks off with a multiple witness case in Californians. Comes to us from field investigator William M. Murphy. Uh, the four teenage boys, uh, only one of whom, Daryl Rich, who's 16, gave permission to use his name, although the names of all the boys appeared in the press stories. But I guess those boys didn't want their name in the APRO Bulletin or their parents didn't want their name in the APRO bulletin. So here is the, uh, here's the rundown of how this, um, how this happened. The four youths were driving to another friend's house in Anderson, California at 9 p.m. on January 19th, 1972, when they observed what they described as a bright oval blue-white light across the road ahead of their car. There was a low overcast estimated at 400 feet. The light did not pulsate or flicker, and it crossed as fast as a jet and at our telephone pole height, said Daryl Rich. The light source made no sound. The observers could discern, and they estimated its distance to be about 120 to 150 feet ahead of them. They also estimated it to be six feet high and three feet wide. It was very bright, Rich told APRO's field investigator, and lighted the countryside and the inside of our car. Mr. Murphy states that no other reports of the light were made, although there are widely scattered houses in the area. After the observation, the youths, two of whom are brothers, 14 and 16, and one other one, aged 15, parked near the Battle Creek Bridge and started to cross a field to the creek when they heard a peculiar screech and saw a tall figure running from them in a stooped position. The boys claimed that the figure, only 30 feet away when first seen, was brown or green, with no hair but lumps all over his body. Some have proposed that the youths were planning an illegal salmon take and that a game warden scared the boys away. The boys immediately left the area, took a wrong turn on their way home, and drove through a sparsely populated area. Along this deserted road, they claim they saw three orange balls in the sky which followed their car and flare-type flashes both ahead and behind them. After a while, two of the orange balls touched, and as they did so, the third one reportedly flew up and disappeared into the overcast. The other two ascended more slowly and faded out of sight. The youths claimed the orange balls were as big as basketballs held at arm's length. They believed them to be about one half mile distant. Later, they claimed that yet another light, blue, white, and oval, paced their car for five or six miles. Now, Daryl's father, Dean Rich, um, he didn't believe the boys at first, and I think I know where he's coming from. There's a lot going on in the story with various balls and blumpy men running around but uh, he went out to the scene with uh, with with the boys one of the boys didn't want to go back daddy uh, daddy rich took along a, a pistol and noticed that and notified the police department who was there and the police department called the Shasta County Sheriff's Office and so there was a patrol car out there and nobody saw or heard anything unusual but uh, Mr. Dean owns a welding shop and is a respected businessman, plans to run for city council, and he's a pilot. Um, 
Murphy conducted a thorough investigation, uh, which included inspection of the ground where the humanoid sighting took place. Nothing abnormal was there. Um, Coral says, quote, one must accept the word of the boys or label the incidents as a hoax. Mr. Murphy concludes, neither the paper reporters, nor I, nor the boys' parents, nor local ranchers think it is a put-on, end quote. Well, it's not a put-on, so that's good. But I don't know. It's a, it's a weird story. It seems to have a lot of different uh, a lot of different elements. You've got the humanoid sighting, but you got uh, flying things in the air at the same time. You don't see the flying things land where the lumpy guy could have gotten off. Um, it's it's interesting, but it's it's a fun story. Although it does kind of sound like the kind of story some kids would make up. I don't know. I'm I'm being a little a little dismissive, but uh, I'm sure if I was in a field with my friends and we saw a brown and or a green hairless lumpy guy running around, um, I'd be irritated if some podcaster uh, 40 years later said that uh, I was – shoot, 50 years later said that I was uh, making it up. All right. We've got a slight update on the Inquirer reward panel. Um it, it, it's not really much of a uh, much of a, an update. It uh, basically just reiterates what was said in the last issue, but it includes a great picture of the the APRO UFO proof award judging panel. You got the the whole crew there. You've got um, you got uh, J. Allen Hynek there looking like J. Allen Hynek. Uh, you got Leo Sprinkle looking remarkably like his Weekly World News headshot. Um, you've got uh, Jim Lorenzen off at one end, sort of presiding over things, kind of perched at the corner of the table, not really looking like uh, they set a seat for him because they got to get everybody on one side of the table for the photo. I will try to remember to throw this out on social media so you can see this this photo that is, I think, very clearly staged, but they're desperately trying to to not make it uh, make it look staged. There's another fun sighting report in this issue, but I also thought it'd be interesting for you to to get sort of a an idea of the network of of consultants that APRO, I mean not employed, but um, you know, sort of worked with. We've got uh, aeronautics, astronomy, astrophysics, civil engineering, computer technology, electrical engineering, electrical engineering, elect oh, three electrical engineers. Um, Geochemistry, geology, metallurgy, another metallurgy, oceanography, optics, physics, radiation physics, seismology, anatomy, biochemistry, biology. This sounds like Sally Struthers selling you an at-home job training kit, doesn't it? Uh, Biophysics, exobiology, medicine, physiology, zoology, VCR repair, history, linguistics, gunsmithing, philosophy, psychiatry, and religion. Um, some of those weren't weren't real. Um, probably the ones you can you can imagine. I had the, the Sally Struthers commercial in my head for some reason. Um, the uh, we, we mentioned the the consultant in history already, uh, David Jacobs. But also very interesting is the consultant in religion. That's Robert S. Elwood, Ph.D., religious studies scholar who did a lot of work over the course of his career on. Um, on uh, contactees, especially in the UFO field and other uh, other new uh, new religions, um, very very uh, quality scholar. And uh, don't let anybody tell you that religious studies scholars looking at the UFO field is is something that only started happening in the last five years or something. It's something that's been there for, as you can tell, about fifty years. So not. Uh, not a new thing. And if you can get a hold of Elwood's uh, any of Elwood's writings, they're 
They're very good. So there is one more um, sort of case in here, and this is from France. It is a report of a landing. The witness, Mr. Daniel Loretz, who operates a radio and TV store at Tourney, is 63 years old. He has been a voluntary fireman since 1937 and has run his local fire department since 1949. The observation took place on March 18, 1972 at 9.25 p.m. local time as he was driving by a field returning home where he had, from where he had left his car repaired. Mr. Lawrence's own words translated describe the incident. I was driving by Renault 6 when I saw a dark object coming from the sky right toward me. I immediately stopped the car and the object landed practically vertically in a field about 150 meters away. It was oval in shape, dark, and stood about 2 meters in height. In the front were two pale lights coming from two portholes, which were directed toward the ground. In the rear was a red light of low intensity. About 30 seconds after the landing, the lights blinked out and it made a noise like a large tractor. This created a strong impression on me, and I hastily departed in my car, but I had trouble in making it go. The engine is almost new, but it coughed for several meters before running normally. The next day, I returned to the same place, but the field had been plowed, and all traces had disappeared. All right, so we've got a craft, we've got the craft landing, and we've got the craft potentially interfering with the operation of a car. This is this is classic stuff. And this isn't coming from four high school kids running around in a field. This is coming from, you know, an, an older gentleman who is who is a, a business owner and uh, runs a volunteer fire department. Now, um, the APRO bulletin does note that uh, at this time, little is known about the credibility of the witness, and it's, he's the only witness to anything. But uh, APRO's man in France is on the case and will provide further information when it is available. All right, that's, that's the end of the March-April issue. There's, there's all kinds of great stuff in these things. And uh, you can find these, by the way, on uh, the, the archives uh, for the Unexplained website, their repository of newsletters and magazines and other things that have been uh, that have been scanned, and uh, I will I will note that the PDFs that they have up there, uh, I think Isaac Coy, some, somebody calling themselves Isaac Coy, is uh, is involved with this. Um, the the scanning that they do is is really high quality, and it is uh, sort of the the sort of OCR'd scanning, you know, optical character recognition. So it's not just a picture of a page; it is uh, it's got text that's recognizable. You can cut and paste it. It's uh, it, it's very handy and search it. It's it's searchable as well. And uh, unsearchable PDFs are um, quite honestly uh, one of the banes of my existence. All right, um, boy, time flies. Let's take a break, and uh, we'll we'll talk about the feedback to uh, to our last episode and uh, do the usual midway break stuff, and then we will jump into the spring and summer. Actually, the summer of 1972. All right. Um, next time, um, I'm not sure. It's a it's a contactee. Oh 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 oh! I know which contactee it is. It is John Dean. No, not the White House Counsel under Richard Nixon. It's a different John Dean. Um, although I should do an episode about John Dean, the White House Counsel during the Nixon administration. That'd be fun. This week on the Saucer Saucer Life, Watergate. Um, No, we won't do that. 
Now, if you like The Saucer Life and you want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. It's been almost a year since we started it up, and it's it's been good. We've got a nice uh, library of materials from The Saucer Life and uh, our show Great Lakes Lore as well. You can check that out at uh, patreon.com slash media, or you can check out the link or, or via the link in the show notes. And past episodes of the show are up at saucerlife.com, or you can just scroll all the way back in your favorite podcast app or ones that aren't your favorite um, makes no difference to me. Um, we are on Twitter still uh, and Instagram at Saucer Life, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. We are also on Mastodon as uh, Saucer Life at Mastodon.social. If you are a Mastodon per- person, um, I almost said Mastodon porpoise. I don't know why. You can also contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan. 48480. And we've got some feedback and questions and things from our uh, our previous episode. Um, some patrons uh, first. Laura says, the Janus People episode ruined me because now whenever there is a story about interplanetary travel, I am disappointed by the lack of barbecues. Seriously, though, great episode. Well, thank you, Laura. And and yeah, it's once, once you get the um, – the, the sort of lakeside speedboat barbecue scene from the Janus people uh, into your brain. It's it's really hard to, um, to, to sort of I – mean, yeah, it is. It is a little disappointing that uh, there, there weren't other contactee stories that got quite that suburban. There were ones that were more bizarre. There are ones that are more sort of outlandish. There are ones that are more realistic. But I don't think there are any that are more comfy. And and sort of, sort of middle class, comfyish, yeah. Uh, also from Patreon, uh, Caleb says Birdman Birdman from Uranus sounds like an adult film starring some guy named Rod Biggs who wears a Birdman costume from the old cartoon throughout the entire romp. Um, I remember in college, uh, Cartoon Network showed the old Birdman cartoon um, every afternoon, and and me and my friends were really into watching the old Birdman cartoon. And uh, I, I really enjoyed when they brought it back as a Harvey Birdman attorney at law. It was always a lot of fun. Vincent Trewell says, uh, hope, so apparently the trope that aliens and future humans will operate as a space navy goes back almost a century. This could serve as a prototype for so many narratives, including Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, etc., not to mention countless contactee encounters. It seems planetary exploration always follows a roughly U.S. Navy model as opposed to corporate, democratic, gangster, religious group, academic, etc. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know if, 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 um, if that's because uh, it's, you've got ships, right? And so when you think of ships – and large groups of ships, I think most people's minds go to sort of a a naval model. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem it does seem kind of interesting. Even the the most peace loving space brothers seem to operate in terms of um, of, of fleets with with ranks and, and hierarchies and and things like that. Uh, Doc Pinko says, "I'm beginning to think that all these guys like Eugene Drake are plagiarizing horny Nazis." Um, yeah. I think that's a, um, a a good a good call. On Twitter, the Walking Dad said, "It's a good name." The Walking Dad says on the Gene Drake episode and science fiction having promises flying cars. Flying cars exist and are quite common depending on where you live. They're just very expensive. They're called helicopters. I never thought of it like that, but they certainly are. Um, 
Some uh, a, a Frank on Facebook says, I'm a little struck by the similarities of their spaceships to those of Dune. In both cases, huge cylindrical ships are transported long distances by the power of the mind of the pilot. In Drake's case, the captain of the ship making the ship ethereal. In Dune, the guild navigator's warping space. Probably no connection, but interesting. Yeah, I had not put that together, Frank, until I read your comment. And it is very interesting, that kind of... Um, that kind of of connection, that kind of parallel, because it's it, it's very sort of unexpected. Uh, there's um, a Doctor Who story from 1980, Warriors Gate, which is totally underrated, um, where there is a um, a, a sort of a, a sort of time traveling ship that is only operated by um, by the use of these uh, sort of sentient creatures who are time sensitive, who are hooked into the machinery. They're enslaved and hooked into the machinery. Um, so a- again, sort of this organic element making the whole thing, uh, the whole thing run. Uh, over at saucerlife.com, uh, Red Pill Junkie says, Drake's explanation of Astralon's powers feels awfully reminiscent of Dr. Occult, an early precursor to modern-day superheroes, which was created by Siegel and Schuster before they came up with Superman. Back in those days, as Jeffrey Kripal explains in his incredible book, Mutants and Mystics, I haven't read it uh, yet, uh, superpowers were derived from what he calls orientation, a reference to strange supernatural abilities cultivated in secret societies in the mystical lands of the Orient instead of alienation, as in the case of Superman, a native from the planet Krypton. Dr. Occult had the ability to change his size to become a giant and also to travel through the astral plane to distant locations. Perhaps Eugene Drake was a secret comic book fan. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, Comic books used to be popular. Uh, And you can say, well, look at the movies. They're popular now. Yeah, comic books really haven't been. They've never been as popular as they were in the 30s and 40s, um, if sales numbers are to be believed. So Drake influenced by by comic books, I think it's it's absolutely, um, absolutely uh, possible. And uh, finally, another comment over at SaucerLife.com from Matthew. Drake included one Alonzo Mathewson in his acknowledgments of life on other planets. He's listed as the astronomer of a king who died 130 years before the book was published. Impressive if true. The only other reference for Mr. Mathewson I could find online relates to a book by Helen Butler Wells, a medium who claimed to receive and dictate messages from Saturn and more earthly historical figures. I wonder if both Drake and Wells ever crossed paths and if going down this rabbit hole has drawn my sanity into question. Well, I wouldn't be doing my job with this show if I wasn't sending some of you down some pretty awful rabbit holes that will that will sort of make you question your sanity. Thanks for the uh, the great feedback on our um, on our Drake episode or Eugene Drake episode. I almost said Frank Drake. That's a different Drake who um, had things to say about space. And I think now it is time to get back to APRO with May and June, nineteen seventy two. All right, May and June 1972 starts off with updates on the French landing case. Further information has come out. There's been an investigation by the uh, GEPA, which is the Study Group on Aerial Phenomenon. Obviously, that is a French acronym, and it doesn't say... Uh, what that acronym stands for in French, but their uh, their newsletter, uh, the GEPA's newsletter, is called the is called Phenomenon Spécial. 
that's my terrible French uh, French pronunciation of things. Uh, Phenomenus spaceox is is how it's uh, how it's spelled. Uh, French people don't uh, don't laugh at me too much. So it they sort of recap the case, and um, it, uh, it it sort of goes on to to say that um, he, he didn't get as much of a close up view as he he wanted to. And it was dark, but he does think what he reported initially is what he actually saw on follow-up questioning. And from what everybody in the area says, he is a reliable person, a, an upstanding citizen, and a probably an honest witness. And um, that's about all they have. So it's not much of an update, but um, just a little more, a little more sort of follow-up to that. Uh, we also have some reporting instructions from the APRO, uh, the APRO um, leadership to field investigations, and uh, this has to do with the microfilming and the the Comcat system that they are developing. Preparing the APRO report files for microfilming has demonstrated how important it is for persons submitting UFO reports to APRO to follow certain guidelines. APRO provides UFO report forms to those persons who request them. Those persons who wish to describe their observations in the form of written testimonies should do so separately from correspondence and membership forms. If reports are contained in letters to APRO, Xerox copies have to be made, one copy for the correspondence files and the other for the report files. This is added work and expense for APRO. Likewise, persons who mail press clippings to APRO should mount them on full sheets with glue, scotch tape, or staples for filing. If all members did this, it would save an enormous amount of work on the part of APRO staff. If you marks are going to do unpaid labor for us, we want you to do it very carefully and to these exact specifications. I mean, I... I get it. I, I, I get why they want to do that. Yes, having a bunch of loose newspaper clippings fall out of an envelope at you would be annoying. Having to make extra copies would be annoying. And this is 1972. Xeroxing is not, uh, is not cheap in 1972. And, and some of you out there are probably too young to remember the word Xerox. That, that's not true. I've seen uh, some demographic samples and um, – Many of you are around my age. Uh, so, no, well, remember uh, Xeroxes. Um, oh, this is interesting. APRO NICAP discussions. On May 26, 1972, Mr. Stuart Nixon, Executive Director of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, NICAP, of Washington, D.C., was in Tucson for a two day round of discussions with the APRO staff. Although Mr. Richard Greenwell, APRO Assistant Director, visited NICAP in 1970, and Mrs. Cora Lorenzen, APRO Secretary, visited their office in 1971, this is the first time that a NICAP staff member has visited APRO headquarters. Mr. Nixon's visit came at a time when APRO-NICAP relations had improved considerably, and it is expected that relations will improve further as a consequence of his visit. The main topics which were discussed related to improving field investigation of UFO incidents, improving APRO-NICAP coordination in such investigations, and the general future of UFO research and the roles which the two organizations will play in it. A first step toward closer cooperation will be taken shortly as a result of Mr. Nixon's visit, and this will be announced in the APRO Bulletin. I bet you thought the most important trip 
taken in 1972 by someone named Nixon was President Nixon going to China to meet with Mao Zedong. He would be so wrong because this is so much bigger. This is bigger than Nixon going to China. This is bigger than the arms negotiation, uh, limitation negotiations with Brezhnev. This is huge. This is APRO and NICAP talking to each other. And you'll notice that uh, there's no uh, there's no major um, uh, Kehoe. I almost said Major Ed Dames. Good lord. Um, the, uh, the 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 cold medicine is really sort of taking its toll. There's no major Kehoe. The Stuart Nixon is uh, is there. NICAP had gone through uh, gone through some changes, um, but uh, it, it's it's interesting because this is set up as it, it reads like you know this is they're breaking the diplomatic ice, and you know although there had been previous visits in 1970 and 1971, this time NICAP came to us. Um, it's really interesting. I, I need to do more on sort of the history of NICAP and, and, and see what might have prompted this. Uh, I need to do a NICAP episode, actually. But um, I, I kind of wonder, NICAP wasn't long for the world in the early 1970s. So I wonder if if there was some sort of merger being talked about in some way. I'm sure somebody out there will have uh, some insight into all that because there are some real NICAP scholars out there. Uh, which, Speaking of which, uh, cheap plug, if you haven't read my friend Jack Brewer's book, um, Wayward Sons, about uh, the early history of NICAP and uh, the involvement of the CIA with some aspects of the, the founding of NICAP, be sure to check that out. Uh, that book is so good that I don't feel like I need to do a NICAP episode because, you know, Jack's got it covered. Now, there's not a lot of other really interesting stuff in this issue because about, oh gosh, about half of the, no, fully half of the, uh, of the, the, yeah, little, yeah, not, maybe not quite half. Um, it's a total of nine pages, pages six, seven, eight, and nine. Almost half are taken up with a review of J. Allen Hynek's book, The UFO Experience, which, I mean, is totally appropriate because it is an amazing sort of groundbreaking book by a guy who was on the absolute inside of these uh, of these Air Force investigations and is a you know legit scientist to boot. But it does tend to push out other uh, other news and and strange uh, strange stories so that is where we'll end may and june 1972 let's take a look at july and august now the big headline at the top of the front page is spectacular report from kansas and this is a case from august 19th of 1972 and the principal witness is paul carter officer paul carber Carter of the Colby, Kansas Police Department. There had been UFO activity in the general area, which is northwestern Texas, for two weeks before he had his experience. But he had um, he had an encounter um, of his own. He was out on patrol when a man called in from Gem Township to report a UFO. He was very disturbed. And about 10 minutes after that report comes in, Officer Carter is patrolling on Highway 24 when he saw an object sporting alternately flashing red and green lights directly ahead of him. At approximately two to 300 feet altitude, it was heading southwest. 
Carter turned south and headed out of town toward Interstate 70, pacing the object at about 50 to 60 miles per hour. He stopped at the overpass, whereupon the object, which was ahead of him, swung back over I-70 and came to a stop over a pasture east of Carter's car. Carter was parked so that the car was facing east, and he got a good look as the object, red and green lights flashing, blotted out stars and some of the terrain. He could clearly see a terrace in the field in front of the object between his car and it, but a terrace on the far side of it, as well as the telephone poles, which he should have been able to see, were not visible. Just as the object settled to its position 10 to 15 feet above the ground, it turned to an intense, bright, white light which illuminated the field and surrounding area as well as the interior of his car. He says he even spotted a couple jackrabbits in the pasture. However, the light was so bright that he had to turn his head away and close his eyes because it blinded him. Now, other officers saw something else red and green that could have been the same object. It looks and sounds from the, the story absolutely absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, that that's one of the great things about looking at these old newsletters is you get sort of a, a glimpse of these cases that you might not uh, you might not be aware of otherwise. And uh, a lot of times these are these are really fascinating. And a lot of these do end up in the books that the Lorenzens will uh, will write. A lot of those the, the content of those books are sort of culled from uh, the reports they got in the bulletin, of course. But these old newsletters really are a treasure trove for all kinds of uh, all kinds of things. So there's another interesting story here. Occupants sighted in Australia, and I assume these are occupants of a UFO and not just occupants of, I don't know, a car or something. The Queensland edition of The Australian for July 22, 1972, carried a short mention of the sighting of what was referred to as six aliens near Kirribee, Queensland, in the early morning of July 19th. The witness was allegedly very frightened and confided in his wife, who called the Flying Saucer Research Bureau in Brisbane and related the information. After the short mention appeared in the press, the man called the Bureau himself and related the following. At about 2 a.m. on the morning of the 19th, he was on his way to work and when at Kirby, not far from Kirby Settlement, he became aware of about six objects on the passenger side of the road. The six objects became figures as he approached. They were a soft gray in color, and as he came even closer, five of the figures turned away. The remaining one stepped out toward the road and put out his hand. The witness tried to determine the features of the remaining figure and was surprised to see that although he was not helmeted, his face was covered with a sort of faceted covering. He compared the face to a diamond, coming to a point and with no features visible. The man had been traveling about 45 miles per hour when he first sighted the figures, but after seeing the faceless figure and spotting a large, solid, silvery object on the opposite side of the road adjacent to or possibly touching the power lines, he accelerated his car and got away as quickly as he could. At the place where the object was seen are new high-tension power lines. During the sighting, the man said he kept hearing a strange noise, which he could best describe only as, Padoing? Padoing? It gradually faded out as he proceeded along the road, but he could still hear it when he arrived at Kirby Railway Station. The foregoing information was furnished by APRO member Lindsay McKeon, and we hope to make direct contact with the witness in this case. And we're still a year away from the so-called Year of the Humanoids. That is an absolutely fascinating story. I love the faceted, diamond-like lack of face on the head. That is – that's actually chilling. That's that's kind of chilling. And I can see why the guy 
tried to get away. Uh, that's not the only story from Australia that we would see in the July and August 1972 issue of the APRO Bulletin. On June 25, 1972, at 12.50 p.m., a small UFO was alleged to have left the ground and joined a large delta-shaped craft over the sand hills near Melville, Western Australia, near Perth. Professional photographer Graham Harris reported that he had been covering a rough country car test and had stopped for lunch when his driver, Peter Lynn, let out a yell from the top of the sand hill. Upon looking up, he and Lynn saw a small, dark object rise from the ground into the sky toward a delta-shaped craft cruising slowly overhead. Harris said the operation was, quote, just like a lunar module rejoining its mothership, end quote. Immediately after the two craft met, he said, the larger object accelerated at a fantastic rate and disappeared within moments. Harris claimed he managed to photograph it just as it zoomed away, but its speed was so great that even though his camera photographs three frames per second, it was gone by the fourth frame. This information was carried in the Perth Sunday Times, and it is hoped that one of our Australian members or field investigators will be able to procure more information and possibly a copy of the film. I don't know about this one. I, I want to believe it, but professional photographer, I, I just wasn't fast enough. I don't know. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's lots of times when, when people encounter strange things and don't sort of think to use the camera that is hanging around their neck or in the case of, of most of us these days, the camera that is in their pocket sort of built into their, their phone. They don't think to do that. But it, it's just such a, oh, come on moment you got that the, the little ship going up to join the 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 um what is it delta shaped um delta shaped mothership oh it would have been would have been so cool to um to be able to be able to see that the september and october 1972 issue um actually has some really interesting stories that i think would be better in a full episode but there is some interesting stuff in here um we had in the previous issue the lengthy review of uh, dr Heineck's book um and there's a, there's a news blurb about Heineck's book the long-awaited book by dr j allen Heineck is in its second edition and selling well we urge all apro members to obtain or at least read a copy as it not only presents dr Heineck's version of the air force involvement in ufo studies but defines and discusses his the whole ufo question and proposes methods of investigation and study, um, and it, it goes on to sort of, sort of, you know, have some blurbs from various reviews. It's it's very interesting that uh, that it's not not that's not the right word. It's very cool that we're sort of here as Dr. Heineck's book, which I think most of us who've been into this for a long time have encountered in one way or another to sort of see it when it was new and uh, and, and very exciting to people. But there are some cases in here that are. Pretty interesting, but really, I don't know. I the more I read them, the more I was like, oh, I kind of would rather work that into a different episode about sightings of that particular type. So instead of the 1962 occupants case it talks about, or the um, South Africa flap, uh, we do need to do a South Africa episode or discs over Brazil. I'm going to uh, share with you a an article that has the the intriguing headline: "Who and where is Steve Cleveland?" 
At approximately 2.30 a.m. on August 25, 1972, a young man who identified himself as Steve Cleveland, a carnival worker of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, called WLS Radio in Chicago, Illinois, and talked to Gil Gross. Cleveland claimed that he was sitting on his suitcase outside of Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, hoping to hitch a ride north to Eau Claire. The essence of his story was that a huge ship came down in the adjacent field. Two beings about five feet tall got out, took soil samples, got back into the ship, and then lifted off. He claimed that he watched the object for 15 minutes. APRO has been attempting to find this Mr. Cleveland, if he does exist. There is the possibility that someone heard of the Falterstack case and decided to pull a little hoax. The only Cleveland listing in the Eau Claire area is not an assigned number, so he ran into a dead end there. Inquiries in the area were made to schools and colleges, but with no results. It is possible that if Steve Cleveland exists at all, he may be a young man who moves around from time to time, and that Eau Claire may be where he originated. Any member who has any idea of how to locate Mr. Cleveland should get in touch with headquarters as soon as possible. Although only a one-witness case, the details indicate that a thorough investigation should be undertaken nonetheless. Oh, please don't fall for this. Please don't fall for this. A carny calling himself Steve Cleveland said all this stuff on a radio show in Chicago. No. No, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. But I, I do love the sort of Hail Mary sort of move of of saying, if any of you out there know Steve Cleveland, please get in touch. I, I just think that's that's kind of, I don't know, folksy? Is, is it folksy? I don't know. I, it's, that's the thing about APRO. Um, it, it, it just seems like a very cozy operation. And I know that, that from things I've read, uh, particularly um, Jim Mosley's, uh, memoir. Cora Lorenzen was not a cozy person. She could be a bit, uh, a bit, bit flinty and 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 sharp, and a bit, um, a, a, a very much um, insisting upon herself. But um, she was a woman in the UFO field in the fifties and sixties and seventies. You, you've you've got to sort of got to sort of throw your weight around if you want to uh, if you want to be be part of that uh, part of that scene. And um, I let's look. We're there at the end, so let's look at the November and December 1972 issue of the APRO Bulletin. The big headline on the front page, Incident at Nogales, Arizona, was the early morning hours of August 20th, 1972, and a local school teacher encountered something strange. Mrs. Helen Sutherland, a teacher in the public school system at Nogales, was wakened by an unearthly howl from her white Samoya dog who was outside the house in the back patio. She laid in bed watching a strange bluish-silver light which illuminated the curtains of the bedroom window. The dog continued to howl, so she went outside to see what was wrong. Going through the kitchen, she reached the side door, stepped out, and was immediately aware of a peculiar droning sound which sounded as though it came from above and from some distance. When she looked up into the sky, she saw an oval-shaped light source, which appeared to be the source of a cone of bluish-silvery light which bathed the main section of the city. She described it as being like a flashlight shining down on the ground. It kept flashing off and on, and the light from it gave cars and tops of houses a sort of iridescent glow, as if they were themselves giving off the light. Mrs. Sutherland estimated that the light flashed on and off eight to ten times, and that she watched it for approximately thirty minutes. Her dog had quieted down when she came out, and she was able to observe it closely for that period of time. Although she cannot pinpoint the exact time, she said that the kitchen clock read 2.30 at one time, 
when she glanced at it, but does not know if it was when she came out of the house or when she re-entered it. After the 30-minute observation, the lights of Nogales suddenly went out, and Mrs. Sutherland became alarmed and went inside. There were other witnesses as well. Marco Flores was a 22-year-old nightclub owner, and he uh, was called The House and Cellar, a nightclub for young people in Nogales, and he heard a strange humming sound and saw a, a lighted area a quarter mile in diameter. There was another story um, or another another witness, um, John Gleason, an employee of the telephone company, uh, saw a ball of fire and uh, Consuelo Corrales, secretary of Sacred Heart Parish Nogales, um, was another witness. She said that her husband saw something flashing and woke her up. They looked out their bedroom window and there was a silver color, which she said was a silver colored rainbow or halo of light directly east and quite close to their house, which lit up the surrounding terrain. So there are a number of witnesses to uh, to this uh, to this adventure. That's not the right word. But um, there had been a power plant explosion close to the time the object was seen. Um, the uh, the Lorenzens examine that possibility that um, that there had been some effect from the uh, power plant explosion. Um, one of the plant managers at uh, there at the power plant said that there were helicopters around, and so people might have seen the helicopters that were lighting the ground around the explosion and fire. Um, they might have seen con- some conversation of those things. Um, I-, I think it's likely that that some kind of um, some kind of, of thing is 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 connected to the power failure. The Lorenzens don't think so, but I mean, what do I know? I wasn't there, but uh, it's it's interesting. It's it's a it's a good story. And again, multiple um, multiple witnesses in, uh, in in this case. Again, this is an issue that spends a lot of time, probably about a third of its um, of its coverage on. Um, on a book review, in this case, UFOs, A Scientific Debate by Carl Sagan and Thornton Page from Cornell University Press. Um, that's another sort of uh, sort of classic. Um, and uh, the, um, the best line from the review is, with few exceptions, the book is most readable. That's really, with my books, all I really hope is that, that somebody says, you know what, this was, this was able to be read. Uh, this was very readable. So, that's kind of a trip through 1972 in UFO land, at least through the eyes of the APRO, uh, the APRO Bulletin. And what I think sort of jumps out at me about this, and this was, again, a whole year of newsletters, is there were some interesting cases, um, not always ones that we have heard of and not ones that, that you can really do much with. This is an interesting story. We don't know what happened. We don't really have a way to go back and find more information, but here it is put it in the computer, put it in the filing cabinet. We will cross-reference it um, at an appropriate time if we, uh, if, if we can or, or if, we, uh, if we have to. Um, and uh, I, I think one thing, another thing that's interesting about, about this year is I think, I mean, maybe I'm not, uh, not picking up on something, but it seems almost like the biggest story was, um, was Hynek's book coming out. That was a, a big a big deal, um, and and Heineck was on the board of this this Inquirer Award thing, um, and Heineck was no longer 
doing the uh, doing the Air Force consulting for Blue Book because Blue Book was gone by '72. We are we are well and truly a couple years into the the sort of wilderness years for ufology in the 1970s and early 1980s. That period after sort of the the Air Force investigation debunking with Blue Book, that era comes to an end with uh, with with the um, the the Condon, sorry, the Condom Committee report. And then um, you've got this, and, and things pick up again, unfortunately, in the 80s when you've got MJ-12 and Roswell and the abduction phenomenon sort of becoming, in quotes, the abduction phenomenon that we all sort of know and love or loathe, as the case may be. But during the 1970s, you've got interesting cases. You've got Interesting sightings of strange things that don't match things that came before or really things that came after. Uh, this is the decade of the humanoids, as and not just the year of the humanoids, it's the decade of the humanoids in a lot of ways. This is where we get Pascagoula, which I know it's an abduction sort of thing, but it's also kind of a weird humanoid occupant case as well. Um, we've got uh, we've got the diamond faceted faced creatures in Australia. It is a very interesting time, and uh, it's it, it's I think really one of the most low key fascinating periods of ufology the 1970s, because you've you've got sort of the Air Force out of the way. Things are getting a little bit weird. You've got Jacques Vallée writing more books. You've got um, a wider variety of cases than you've seen before, but um, not, uh, not, not easily debunkable sort of contactee style things. You, you've got genuine weirdness and some cults, of course, and you've got In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. So a fascinating time, and I think going through uh, the APRA Bulletin for 1972 gives us a good idea of what uh, what that decade was shaping up to be. Thank you for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media channels or email channels. We'll be addressing those next time. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. And Simpson informed me yesterday that 2022, this year, in fact, December of 2022, is the 30th anniversary of Chizo Media, um, which was formerly Chizo Records. And it is a, a fascinating thing to, to sit and reflect on 30 years of really not doing much more than some really weird stuff in high school and college and, um, and then this podcast. But uh, Chizo Media, 30 years of our heart being with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.